Hi, my name is Diane Hartley, and I'm the president of the Institute for Luxury Home Marketing. Today, we will be featuring a special episode from the Institute's annual event, Leaders in Luxury. In this special episode, you will hear from Louise Guido, associate publisher of Mansion Global, the premier digital destination from Dow Jones connecting affluent real estate buyers with prestige properties across the globe. Louise will be sharing her unique insight on the luxury real estate agent, the Mansion Global Reader, and how the two can successfully come together. All right, boy, I'd like myself already if I didn't know who the hell I was. All right, I'm, I'm pretty cool. Yeah, so the reason she referenced that is that before I got back into this business in publishing, I started my career in publishing. I worked for House Beautiful Magazine, Town & Country, Travel and Leisure. I was actually, I'm old enough to tell you that I was the first woman hired by Forbes Magazine. That was a Mad Men days, let me tell you. Yes. And I, I didn't know I was the first woman until I was there about six months because back in the day, you know, the men, of course, had their offices on the perimeter and in the bullpen, as it were, were all the secretaries, we used to call them. And I, I used to see a lot of women. And one day I was at the, I guess I was at the Christmas party and they said, Louise, you're the only, you're the only woman here. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. I, I see all these folks here. And they go... No, you're the only woman. And I thought, oh, crap. I mean, I was like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And I learned a lot about men then, and I learned about how to deal with people because it was very, you know, the men were, I was an anomaly. They weren't used to having a woman in sales. And this is back in the day when, you know, you would take men to lunch and the server would give the bill to the man, always. And, um, you know, the thing, things changed along the way. Well, my career went on, and um, I started my own publication about in, for about 10 years. I had a company called Living Abroad. It was for expatriate executives. I turned it into an Internet company. Um, then I became, I, I went to Sarasota, Florida after I sold that company because I had all this money, and I didn't know what the hell to do with it. So somehow I wound up from New York. I went to Sarasota, Florida. I don't know. I'm not sure what I was thinking, but it was lovely. And I got to Sarasota, and I thought, oh, what do I do now? Like, uh, okay, I have this money. I know it's not going to last forever. And so I had two choices. One, uh, and I know we're in Florida with all due respect, but one, I could go to Disney, or I could be a real estate agent. And I became a real estate broker for 10 years, and at the height of the market, so it was not difficult to make sales. You know, I was, we used to call taking on the transom. When the market crashed, I went back to New York. And I was sort of pissed off at all the financial people, so I decided to start a nonprofit. And it was called the Foundation for Social Change. It became a, a Change Corp, which was a social impact company. And sort of my little claim to fame is that um, we created mobile apps for women in emerging markets. And to this day, uh, I sold that company a couple of years ago. That company actually is reaching women, about a million women a day in 72 countries and 27 languages. And we teach them how to run their business and manage their money and become more empowered. So... Strangely enough, I wound up at Dow Jones in the Wall Street Journal and became back into real estate and back into publishing. But anyway, I am the associate publisher. I know uh, a bit about real estate. Um, it's very, it's, it's, it's the coolest thing to work at a company like the Journal because they have access to research that's just killer. And I know in our world, in your world today, when you're doing real estate, it's very hard to find like sort of the secret sauce sometimes of what's going to make somebody buy the property or sell the property. So let me give you this uh, report we did. 
is the study we did uh, late last year. So it's a little bit of a year old, not quite a year old. And it's our Wall Street Journal readers of um, how, we, um, how we surveyed them. We had about 1,300 readers that we went out and surveyed. And this is the demographic. This is a very typical demographic of our audience at the Wall Street Journal. It's across the country. We measure them from all over the country and, and actually all over the world. Their average household income is almost 300000 uh, Their household net worth, not surprising. It's a journal audience is a little over $3 million. And they, you know, they have, on average, there's 84% of them that have over a million dollars. Now, that's, that's not uh, unusual, particularly in the last 10 years. But there's actually a balance of where they live, northeast, south, midwest, and west. It's not so, we tend to be accused of being in the northeast, but it's quite balanced. So these are the people we asked about their real estate habits. And one of the things we found out, not surprising, is that the average market value on average across the country is a million dollars for our readers. 89% own any real estate at all. None of this is going to sound surprising to you. I think what was interesting is, of course, that San Francisco is the highest market in the country. This was, again, about a year ago. I'm not sure it's changed very much. And you see as you go down the list, you know, it's very high. This, again, is the ownership value of our readers. For almost 40% own two or more homes. Now, when I was a real estate agent in Sarasota, it was a second home community, so I had a lot of clients that actually had two and three homes. And, you know, I was sort of new to the business, and I didn't understand somebody buying a $5 million home and then spending like two weeks a year in it. I thought, well, that just seems like really a luxury. Um, but, you know, this is sort of our audience. They have two, three homes. The average value of their second home is about a half a million dollars. I know that on average a second home could be worth about 500000 but right here this is our audience. Now, I think that the, the meat of this is going to be super helpful to you. I know you heard some statistics before. I know Caldwell Banker has a wealth report on here. This is very matching. So, you know, the audience of real estate buyers has changed, right? You see it every day. Baby boomers love to acquire property. It was a symbol of success. Generation X, which is the generation sort of after the baby boomers, but not quite the millennials, they actually like you know, you know, investment in rental property. They want to make some money at it. I think this is interesting because I'm a baby boomer. I own several homes. I didn't want anybody to live in it. I didn't want to rent it. That wasn't my gig. I mean, I was going to sleep in my bed with my sheets. But today, it's a different market. We have Airbnb. We have millennials that are used to transition and temporary accommodations. This was a study, you know, this is funny. We have these research, you know, gurus and, and geeks in our office. And when they went to us and said, hey, we're going to do this study, do you have a couple of questions you'd like to ask? And again, being from a, a resort community in my real estate career, I said to them, ask this question. How many times, if you're in a resort community and buying a second home, how many times do you visit before you buy a secondary home? And I guessed at it because I had done this quite often. And it was the average is three visits. People go and visit a place three times before they buy a property. One of the funny little stats here, if you can see the light gray area, is that some of them don't go at all. 10% just buy it sight unseen. We all know that's probably a condo. You know, it's an investment property. What I think is also interesting is that, you know, this statistic of three or more, you know, I was also a broker in New York City for a period of time, and... You know, people just wanted you to buy right then and there. I owned a property in Manhattan, and I'm like, uh, I got to look around first. I'm not going to buy it like today. So people, you have to be thoughtful about how they do things. 
Now, in our ultra-wealth crowd, which we measured the not just the wealthy, our readers, but we measured sort of the ultra-wealth, is that these are people that have you know three and five with assets of five million dollars or more. Well, that's ultra-wealthy. That their average principal residence is two and a half million dollars. This is pretty significant. Their average second home value is a million and a half. But again, when you're that wealthy, you're not really using it as an investment property. This is another little tweak in our readership study. So you saw the slides before. I talked about the Gen X. They're using it as investment property. But when you're ultra wealthy, the reason you have multiple properties and you're not renting them out or you're not using them as investment is because you have big family. And you probably have second and third wives that have family. So you've got to put them somewhere. And that's what I noticed, you know. That was the other thing I noticed in real estate. The one thing I always noticed in real estate, and it was all new for me at the time, but I learned that women always make the decision 100% of the time. And we're in Palm Beach, you know, and when I was in Sarasota and the men come in, you know, it's the second, second or third wife or the girlfriend, and they're, they're going to tell you they're not, they're going to buy that and they're going to buy that. And I'd be like, I don't know, I'm going to ask the girl what she wants because if, you know, girlfriend doesn't get what she wants, he ain't getting what he wants. Am I right? Yeah, 100%. So they could talk all they want, blah, 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 blah. But the woman is always getting what she wants. And I used to just love it because I would, I would make a bet with myself, and 100% of the time I was right. Anyway, so um, this is, again, things that we know about our readership. They're always buying property. They're kind of always in the market to buy a property. Um, and they want to buy you know, property. I mean, I think this is like a weird thing. Uh, you know, people intend to buy within three years. I don't know. They buy when they buy. They buy when they feel the market is right. They buy when there's a life change. They have to move. The job changes. And then this is also, I find, fascinating. For the budget for future residents is really, you know, over a million bucks. And they know they're going to pay more. So there's nothing that they're going to get the deal. Again, multiple uh, people that have multiple properties, as you know, look for deals. But they also say, this is the home of my dreams, the third, second or third home of my dreams, and this is what I want. Now, I'm going to tell a statistic later when, when Diane and I sit down. But you know, half the people pay cash. This was another anomaly I found in New York City, not so much in Florida with second homes. They were getting mortgages at the time. But in New York City, people pay cash. And so it doesn't matter if you pay cash. You still have to get approved by the condo board and so on and so forth. So you can pay cash all you want, but you still have to get approved. And I would have people come in with piles of cash, and they couldn't understand that they weren't accepted. So where are people coming from? Well, you know, if they move, they move within about 300 miles. Again, that's not surprising because sometimes you, you move for a job. What's 300 miles from here? This could be, I don't know where it is from here. I'm not sure. But it could be, to, you know, Jacksonville. Florida, thank you. It could be, uh, that's right, thank you. So, I mean, from New York to Boston, from uh, San Diego to uh, L.A., so on and so forth. Not, not unusual. Now here's where we get into some things that I think you'll really, you'll really like. The South and the West are hot markets. None of this is surprising, given the tax law changes that just happened a couple of years ago. And really, the Northeast is getting killed with taxes, absolutely getting hammered. And it's particularly true in New York, in New Jersey, and in Connecticut. Now, there are pockets of places like in Connecticut or in, um, say, Massachusetts or even Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is super cheap. 
But where are they moving to? They're moving to the South because of, you know, there's no corporate tax in Florida, corporate income tax. There's a lot of benefits. And again, when you have an aging population, even the Gen Xers are getting a little old, they're like, hey, I can live anywhere. I can work anywhere. And I think that this is really indicative, and you have to look at that. We notice we work a lot at Mansion Global um, with uh, uh, Sotheby's International Realty and Berkshire Hathaway and Caldwell Banker, and we know that feeder markets are becoming more important than they ever were. So, uh, you know, I encourage you, if you don't already, a feeder market is important. You want to get them before they came. Now, when I was, again, a broker in Sarasota, Florida, my feeder market was easy. I would just get on 75 and go north and hit Ohio and, and Michigan. And sometimes I'd wind up in, you know, Indiana. And that, I used to make deals up there with brokers and say, look, anybody looking to move to the west coast of Florida, I'm your girl. And I did that way back when because it, wasn't, it was obvious to me where people were coming from. Nobody, I was a New Yorker, nobody was coming from New York. So this is, I think, also where people want to move for, from a primary and a secondary residence. None of this seems surprising. To me, what was actually a little surprising was Phoenix, Scottsdale, you know, Dallas, and Houston. The one that was most surprising to me was Denver. Okay, so again, these are sort of resort-ish. I mean, Denver's sort of not resort-ish, but it's where people can have a kind of a quality of life. And when you're done with the Northeast or you're done with areas of high tax, you want to go to a place that you can enjoy the rest of your life or enjoy maybe you have a second, uh, you have a business and things like that. I thought also the other surprising things was Miami. Wasn't as attractive as we all think it is. So, you know, you never know. This is, again, our readership. One other thing about our readers, they're very global. They're, you know, uh, they are international citizens. They're super cultured. They're super well-traveled. You know, 78% of our readers are C-level executives. So, you know, living globally is not a big deal. For about 10 years, when, uh, before I, uh, when I owned my publishing company, I had a flat in London. And when I had a flat in London, it, it was really interesting because I actually didn't own the flat. I had a 99-year lease, so I owned the, the, the walls. And then I didn't understand what a 99-year lease meant, but it meant that I could live in 99 years and I'd have to give back the flat. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem right, but eh, I'm not going to live 99 years, so it's all good. And then while I was in London, I bought a flat in, I bought a place in, um, in uh, the south of Spain. Well, I was an international buyer, and every single time I had to go through all of this stuff because I wasn't a citizen, and I had to give cash, and I had to do this, and I had to do that. And then the selling process was a bit of a nightmare. But it's kind of fun to own a property like that if you ever get the chance because you got the place to go. So here's something that probably may surprise you and may not surprise you. But how's, how, how do our buyers, you know, we have the mansion section in the Wall Street Journal that comes out every Friday in our print section. And then we have Mansion Global, which is our digital platform online. Mansion Global is a very international buyer. 60% of our users on Mansion Global are not U.S. citizens. These are people buying property from outside the U.S. or coming to the U.S. and buying property or buying property elsewhere. Mansion is considered by many of you, because I've spoken to many of you, the number one ROI that you get from a property. And, you know, in real estate, people still like print. You know, I work for a newspaper, and they're struggling. You know, newspapers are struggling. But at the end of the day, there's certain buyers or certain people, and there's certain types of products that people like to look at print. And real estate happens to be one of them. They like the pretty pictures. You know, you don't want to swipe all the time. You actually want to engage. So 
Action most likely to take after reviewing printer online listings. So our readers would most likely, if they see a print ad, they're going to call or email the broker directly. But online, they'll actually just do it as well. The website, eh, they sort of visit the website. But I think that they'll visit another website, not as much. So the website, the engagement happens quite directly with the agent. They want to call directly. Now, I happen to be in the market for a second home, and I also find it interesting that sometimes I just call up the agent. I see it on Realtor.com, which is a company that, our, our, uh, that News Corp owns, which is a sister company of ours, Realtor.com. And then I, the agent always tells me, are you working with a broker? And I think this is ridiculous, quite frankly. I say yes, and they go, well, have them call me. Seriously? Now you're pissing me off. I just want to talk to you for five minutes, okay? I want to ask you one question. Well, I can't tell you. It's better for the broker. I find that ridiculous. So, so I have to, but I'm calling the agent because I'm, I'm interested in it. I want to know. Now, I know that a lot of people waste your time, but I'll call the, my broker, and I'll call them, and I'll go back, and it's like 27 different things. And I'll say to them sometimes, oh, I'm a broker. Okay, well, then, where are you a broker? I have the 20 questions. You know, I'm in sales my whole life. When somebody calls you, you take their questions, <laughs> okay? One other thing I found interesting about our, our, our research uh, study is that, you know, not a surprise, people use brokers, right? We all say that, you know, the, the, um, the day of that going away or is not, is not going to happen. Um, I'm in the process, like I said, I'm an experienced real estate agent, but the area that I'm looking in, I'm not experienced in. So I don't know what the tax laws are. I don't know what the other rules are about buying a property in a local market. And there's one truism that we forget sometimes with our clients is real estate is local. It's just fundamentally local. So as cool as I think I am and as smart as I think I am and I'm experienced, I've had six properties I've owned, I don't know where the hell I'm buying in that local market. So somebody's got to tell me. And I want it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I don't want to do it online. And I don't want to talk to a bot on, like, you know, Redfin or something. I don't even understand that. So here's the deal. How most people find clients, right, is, you know, a referral, right? You find clients from a referral from a client or a colleague or a friend. Years of experience. I know, again, when I was a real estate agent, in the first couple of years, I used to lie. They'd say to me, how long have you been a real estate agent? I'm like, eh, 10 years. I was an agent for, like, six months. But I, I always believe you've got to tell them what they want to hear. Just tell them. They want to hear I was 10 years. I grew up in the business. Yeah, I got it. I used to tell them whatever they wanted to hear because I wanted to make the sale. I was like, well, if they think I'm just, I'm green, I don't know anything. It doesn't matter. But I was in sales. So, you know, you know how to learn and you listen. Okay. So if somebody in this third part, I don't know if you can read it, they were responsive to my calls or emails. Just my point earlier that they didn't, you know, yes, they responded. Yes, let's have a conversation. Happy to help you. Or the least favorite thing I ever hear now, now that I'm a buyer, and I've bought many properties, is, oh, that's under contract. But, you know, if you want to come by and look at it, I'm like, for real? Like, what is this? Like, there's not another house? You know, I mean, seriously. I used to tell people there's always another house. Don't worry about it. Um, You've got to be with a respected company. Now, when I was in Sarasota, and I hate that, I'm in a room full of realtors, I can tell you this, I was a small little pipsqueak company. But, but I was high touch, and I wanted to service my clients the way I never got service. So people used to come to me just because they heard I was not that I was not that kind of agent that I had, you know, the big brand name behind me. But I, if I was going back in the business, which I did, I would go with a brand name because they do a lot of marketing for you, and I don't have the energy I used to have, so I ain't doing all that work. 
The thing that I find most surprising about this little stat here is that real, the way you find you know, a client is, or the way clients find you is through the, real, the realty company's website. Okay, So a lot of you go crazy doing your website, but it's not exactly how they like find you. But you have to have stuff there, right? It's almost like just having you know, your annual report and your information. So we know that our readers love, love the journal. I mean, they are, it's like a cult, okay? And they agree that it's a good environment for real estate listings. Mansion, the mansion section is, is the highest read section in our newspaper. Across the board, it's crazy. You know, we got because if you know the journal at all, we don't have that many sections. We don't like we're not like the New York Times or some of the mass papers like the Tribune. We're very tight. We talk about business, economy, sometimes life and arts, and then like real estate. We don't talk about a whole lot of other things. We don't really have a sports section on something big is happening. But I think that Mansion shows you that the core of um, of of who we are is that our client lives a particular life. Our reader lives a particular life. And real estate is the core of that. They are really where they need to be. And I think when I'm in the, the company, you know, we have, uh, again, as the journal, we're selling, you know, financial services companies. We're selling luxury brands like Louis Vuitton. And they look at real estate sometimes and they go, well, you're just real estate. And I'm like, for real? No, no. Real estate makes up the, the net worth and the portfolio of anybody. Anybody in this room, their money, your money's in your real estate. That's where my dough is. And so when you say somebody's net worth, it's, it's sitting you know, 70, 80% many times in their, in their real estate. But there's a perception that it's just real estate and it doesn't have a lifestyle. And as I like to tell my clients, uh, I like to tell my, my uh, colleagues, I say, listen, um, the thing is that Nobody buys a $5 million house and puts a crappy car in the driveway and then furnishes it with a Kia that's left over, okay? You buy a $5 million house and you got that second wife or that, you know, that girlfriend on the side, you got to trick it out. And that's the whole thing. So real estate is key. So anybody like tell you different, it's key to everybody's lifestyle. Thank you very much. Okay, so I, I would bet that this entire room would rather be me sitting up here chatting with you. That was awesome. Thank you very much. Have a seat. Have a seat. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Wow. Great. Hilarious. I thought uh, Jenny had the, the best line um, that it's what's hot is having a British accent uh, in the United States, but I think you've got about six more. Yeah. Um, okay, so a couple of things that come to mind that I wanted to ask you. Uh, first and foremost, the Institute is, it works pretty closely with the Asian Real Estate Association of America, ARIA. And I wanted to ask you kind of what's happening to the Chinese buyer today. Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, um, there's a, I always had another theory in real estate that the, the, the market was about six months, nine months ahead of where consumers were, right? So the market sort of tells you things. And what happened in the Chinese market is that, and you probably know this either reading the paper or reading the news, that China cracked down on people taking money out of China, right? So the Chinese were not allowed to take more than $250,000 out. And so when there was this flood of Chinese buyers, and just from a statistic point of view, 
Um, I heard this recently, I read this recently on the you know, National Association of Realtors. The Chinese were responsible for buying $38 billion worth of real estate in 2018. $38 billion worth of U.S. real estate. All foreign national buyers bought about $120 million, a billion dollars of real estate, but the Chinese were the biggest. So when they were buying, they're buying investment, and they pay cash, 70% pay cash. They pay cash because there's no culture for mortgages, right? They don't do mortgages. And so you may have seen this, you know, the statistics and the scenes where they were building whole condominiums and towns in China, and like nobody was living there. So they decided to take their money and take it elsewhere where they could have an investment. I sold a lot of Chinese buyers in New York, and they buy cash, and then they put their kids in there who are going to college. So they do this. They spend all their money, and then all of a sudden the Chinese government says, no, you can't do that. So they started figuring out ways that they could actually transfer the money to their kids, buying companies, opening up companies so they can dump money in the U.S., but now what's also happened is that Hong Kong, you may again know what's happening in Hong Kong. Hong Kong was an independent state for a long time until the British gave it back, and they let them govern themselves for a while, and now the Chinese national government is saying, nah, you guys have to come under our rule now, so enough of that. So you have this, a lot of wealth was in Hong Kong, it moved to mainland China, and now they're just like pulling back. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be other people that are coming in, and I yeah. can tell you about those. Yeah, what about the rest, right? Yeah. There's 80 more billion, right? There's, exactly, there's a lot more. And they're more standard. So the, the, the next group of international buyers, this is, I may surprise you, is coming from Canada, from the UK, from India, not surprising, the fastest growing you know, ultra net worth group in the, in the, in the world, and Mexico, Mexico. Again, you want to, when you see, because I, I worked internationally for a long time, and when you see money pulling from these places is that they don't want it in their own country. They don't where, get rid of where it. are they moving to? Or, or where, where are they buying? So like, yeah, let's pick so, Mexico. Yeah, where, so, where are they buying? Exactly. And I don't know about the Mexicans, but I'm guessing is that you've got Florida, California. Mm -hmm. We have Texas, New York, and Arizona. So New York, because of the schools, and a lot of foreign nationals tend to go to school uh, where uh, schools are. Mm -hmm. So good schools. The Northeast has a lot of schools. New York has a lot of good schools. California has a lot of good schools. So that's where they'll do it. They'll dump their money in their kids. Excellent. So I, I have one more question, um, and it's, it's sort of a perplexing thing, right? So we're still in this really low interest rate environment, oh, yeah. but, but we're seeing a shift in the market. Did you have a commentary on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple of factors. You know, I'm, I'm reading my stuff, but what I find fascinating is there's a couple of factors. One is that it's an anomaly, right? Interest rates are low, inventory is kind of low, but the prices are high. So it's not a perfect storm, it's actually a crummy storm. And what I've noticed, again, uh, is that people are renovating homes, trying to sell them at a high market, but in a, in a not-so-nice area. And so you've got this displacement of price per square foot in the neighborhood, right, in the area. Well, buyers are smart today. You know that. I mean, they come, like, armed with all their Zillow Zestimates and all that other junk they have. I don't know. It's a Zestimate. I don't even know what the hell. I hate the word Zestimate. It sounds like, sounds like a drink, you know. Anyway, um, like a, you know, like, uh, I don't know. It sounds like Gatorade, a Zestimate you're going to have. But, 
and, and spike the Zestimate, it will make it much better. But anyway, uh, they have, uh, they'll have these, they'll come armed and they do their homework. You know, I mean, the, the average person knows the price per square foot, which is like shocking. So to me, that's what's happening. And it's, I think it's perplexing to the government. The other side is, is that we had a tax law change that I said to my colleagues, this is going to be difficult for the real estate industry. You know, again, when I had multiple properties, I was able to write off all the, 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 ta the property taxes. Now I only get $10,000. Well, if you live in the Northeast, that's like 70% of your taxes. So you're not even able to write off, and you can't write off a, a lot of other things. I think that was like the worst move ever, quite frankly, for real estate. And it doesn't inspire anybody to buy property at a high level or multiple properties. Okay. Do you have a solution for that? Um, I do. I mean, just I, an idea, right? Like, what, yeah. what would you do? I think, like, I would tell people to stop renovating crummy stuff unless they're going to renovate it well. You know, the, the thing is, is that people, people today, this is where there's a, a market shift. Somebody like me, but there's a lot. The millennials, they don't want to work on a house. They don't want to, like, fix it up. That's not happening, am I right? They're not, I mean, me, I walk in because I'm a no mess, no fuss type girl. But a millennial, no, no, I want it done. And they'll deal with if it's not done to their style. So you have people out there that are creating, you know, you invest in a property, they renovate it. But I think it makes it so that home ownership becomes transactional and not a place to live. So home ownership is transactional, but we see statistics like, and this is why the interest rates are stubborn, people don't stay in homes as long as they used to. So they're still looking at a home that they can get a big old fat return after three or four or five years, and that ain't happening. You know, we all remember the financial crisis, and uh, I was lucky. I got out with the house I paid for, but, you know, people lost a lot. So I think it's just the interest rates are not the driver anymore. There's other Very market factors. Well, look, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say, does anyone have one question? Just one. Stand up if you've got a question for Louise before we take her off. No? What? You do. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, go, Diane. This is Diane. <laughs> so when you were talking about when you talk to a realtor on the phone and they yeah. just want to hang up because you have broker or whatever, how would you like to have seen that conversation go? And what Great question. Have kept you going? So Did yeah. everybody hear that? Converted, yeah. All right, so the question was, what, what did you want to hear when you called? And, was to and were told, hey, you know, I'm not going to talk to you. Yeah, and you know, this is a really great question because I'm that nightmare buyer where I make the offer, I get the accepted offer, and then I don't go through with it. And, uh, oh, I'm not. Yeah, and, um, but here's what I wanted to hear. And I've talked to colleagues of mine because I'm the resident real estate expert in my company, right? So they come to me, they go, Louise, I'm looking for, you know, and they have the same uh, situation. Here's what I would like to have heard, which I did every once in a great while, was absolutely love to show you the property. Uh, are you working with an agent? Yes, but she can't come. No problem. Give me your name. We'll connect, but happy to show you the property. The end. Instead, there's this like unwritten rule, which again, I had in Sarasota, if somebody would, and I had it in New York, if somebody wanted to see my property, I would honor the agent if they brought later. What did I care? It's, we're all busy, you know? I mean, why would you waste my time? And why would you say no to me before you said yes to me? And I've been in sales a long time. Why would you say no or make it difficult? I mean, we're not looking at the Taj Mahal I'm not trying to buy. I'm buying a house somewhere that's a second home. So I didn't understand that. Yeah. Thank you. 
That would be it. Thank you for the question. It was an excellent question. And thank you very much. What yes. a great first thank you. discussion. You rock. Thanks, Diane. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us on this special episode featuring just one of our amazing speakers at Leaders in Luxury. If you're interested in learning more about the Institute and Leaders in Luxury, you can find out more at LuxuryHomeMarketing.com. If you like what you just heard, please share with a friend. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for listening.